The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Good morning, church family. Good to see you all here this morning. Hey, wanted before we jump into the, the message this morning, I wanted to make sure you heard we announced last Sunday um, that next week, which is the 21st, uh, we'll be moving our morning services back indoors. For some of you, like me, who have been at our church for less than a year, you don't even know what the inside of the auditorium looks like. You're like, we have a building? We do have a building. So we are, we are excited to, to go inside. I'm excited to preach inside the actual church building for the first time to people. That'll be fun. Um, so so we're, we're excited for that. If you would like, um, and just so you know, we will continue as we always have, even pre-COVID days, to have outdoor worship. So there will still be outdoor seating um, with uh, the sound system and stuff set up. So even if you want to stay outside, please still come and worship together with us. And as a reminder, we're, we're doing this. Um, we just feel that God's calling us. This is the right season to move inside. And our hope is that we would just continue for our focus to be not on where we meet or anything like that, but on helping to, to connect people into relationship with Jesus as we lead into this new season that we have coming up in front of us. And I know for some of you, you're like, it's about time. It's so stinking cold in the morning in Morgan Hill. Well, I talked to my wife this morning. She's back in Chicago for work this week. It's snowing right now. It's not that cold. It's not that cold, right? It'll only be 78 or something today, right? So I think we can suffer for the Lord together in California through it, right? Let me pray for us before we jump into our passage this morning. God, we do thank you that your goodness is so evident in our lives and it's evident in this church. God, and we thank you for, for your faithfulness to us through each and every season of our life. We thank you for your faithfulness for us as a church through this season of meeting in a different spot here in the courtyard. And God, we know that, that you are the same God 30, 40 years ago and you will be in the future. So God, we trust you as we look towards what you have for us. God, we ask that you would be here amongst us, that you would open our eyes, that you'd be with us now as we turn to scripture. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open them up today to the book of Ephesians chapter 5. We are working our way. We have a few weeks left to go as we walk through the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 1 through 21. 1 through 21. Well, it is, it is amazing as a parent, and our daughter is now 18 months old, as she has started to get more verbal, it's amazing to realize how much our kids imitate what parents do, isn't it? How much our kids imitate parents. For instance, it is no coincidence, and I'm sure our kid is the only kid, that when she started to talk, her favorite word that she would say over and over again, that I don't know where she heard it from, was no. Right, and this this sweet thing, like she didn't just say no, like she said it with attitude, right? Like no, no. I'm like, how does a 14 month old have this kind of like, girl, you're way too young to be doing this to your dad, right? And so then it was the attitude, but then it was this escalation in volume, right? If she didn't get something that she wanted, it would start off like 
no, no. And it would just like, the volume would just continue rising. But since we realize, like, and since we know that so much of what she does is just picking up on what we do as parents, we said, hey, you know, you can actually use this to your advantage sometimes too. And so whenever she would be getting really loud, whether she'd be upset or just really excited and way too loud in the car for what she was doing, Kristen and I, we would always just start to look at her and in a nice whisper, we would go, wow, wow, that's loud, wow. And so she would hear us do it and go from screaming to whispering back, wow, wow. And it would be so funny, right? Because they only know a few words. So she's just sitting in the back seat of the car going, wow. Wow, that's my parenting technique. I'm going to use it as she's a teenager. I'm sure it'll work great. Every time she's upset, I'll just say wow to her and, and it'll calm her down, I'm sure. But the idea is, right, that, that you get, and certainly as parents, you, you've seen this, for better or for worse, right, our kids imitate us. And this idea of imitation is the theme of our passage this week. If you have your Bibles, Ephesians 5 verse 1 says this, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. We are God's children and just as a child naturally imitates their parents, so we as God's children should imitate our heavenly father. Our lives should be a reflection of his life. What he does, how he lives his life should be caught up and should be evident, should be seen in our lives, that we should imitate God to the world. And he goes on, we're gonna look this morning at three ways, three ways that as, as God's children, we should imitate God. Three ways that we should imitate our father. The first is in verse two, where it says this, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The first way we should imitate God is to love like Jesus. We are called to love like Jesus. The example of love is Jesus's love for us. So it says there, verse two, and walk. This is a common word that we've seen throughout Ephesians. Live in this, this idea of this is the manner of your everyday in and out life, to walk in love. And in case we think that this idea of what love looks like in the Christian life is open for interpretation and just up to however we would decide what love looks like, he gives us a description of love. We are to live and to walk in love how as Christ, as Jesus, loved us. See, the truest example of what love is, is what Jesus' love is like. That's the ultimate example, the ultimate display of love. And get this, as his children, as God's children, we are called to have that same kind of love. That same kind of love that characterized Jesus is what we are called to as his children. This is not a new idea in scripture. Jesus himself to his disciples in John 13 said this, a new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you. Jesus himself from the very beginning says, the kind of love that I display should be displayed by those who follow after me. And Jesus's love is this example to follow, but it's also so much more than that. And he goes in and describes here more of what this love of Jesus is like. 
the significance of Jesus's love for us. So, so as Jesus loved us, well, how did he love us? What does this love look like? The end of verse two, and he gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He's talking here, of course, about the cross, that Jesus gave up himself. He died for us, and it was a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This idea of giving himself up for was Jesus on the cross, his sacrifice was a substitution for us. He died in our place. The substitution, that, that word is still in our commonplace, right? A substitute teacher takes the place of the other teacher. Substitute ingredients is if you don't have it, you substitute it with something else. But Jesus was a substitute on the cross, meaning that we need to remember this. Jesus went to the cross because we deserved it. That Jesus died because you deserve to die. Jesus died because I am a sinner. That's why he went to the cross. He put himself in our place. Jesus willingly offered his life for us. See, it's, it's important that we understand this about the cross, if we understand the love that drove Jesus there. See, Jesus was not, was not caught like in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's like, oh, bad luck, Jesus. You should have stayed out of Jerusalem that week. If you would have gone the next week, maybe you would have been all right. No, Jesus was there at the exact time that he knew that he should be there because of his love for us. Jesus was not caught off guard by the cross, but he was there because of his love for us. He gave himself as our substitute on the cross. And it says there that it is a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, standing alone, that kind of doesn't really make sense. You're like, wait, so it smelled good on the cross? Like, what the world is he talking about? Like, the cross smelled, that probably doesn't smell good. Like, what, what does he mean, a fragrant offering and sacrifice? Well, this is referencing back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. And when a sacrifice was given, that was given, that was deemed acceptable by God, there's a phrase that finds itself repeated over and over in the Old Testament. It's that, that the sacrifice gave off a pleasing aroma to the Lord. We see this first in Genesis 8, when Noah offers sacrifices, and it said there was a pleasing aroma. And then 39 times in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, it talks about that the sacrifices that were given would be a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So when it means that it's a pleasing aroma, it meant that it was acceptable to God for the purpose in which it was given. And so Jesus being a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God means that his sacrifice for our sin is accepted by God. It means that it is pleasing to him. Now here is what's amazing is that Jesus alone is the one who is qualified to be this permanent sacrifice for sin. Right? Jesus alone, because he is the perfect son of God, he is the spotless lamb who was sacrificed for us, is the only one who is able to be this pleasing sacrifice to God on our behalf. This is the greatest display of love ever displayed in the world. And this, my friends, is what we are called to show in our daily lives. And so if we are called to demonstrate this sacrificial love, this love that would lay down our lives for someone else, give up of itself. 
The question that we have to wrestle with is how do we grow in this life of love? How do we grow and allow the love of Jesus to flow through us more? I think the book of 1 John is helpful when thinking of how do we learn to love when it reminds us of this in 1 John 4.19. It says that we love because he first loved us. We can learn to love because Jesus, because God first has loved us. Our capacity to love others grows in our correlation with the capacity of receiving the love of Jesus into our lives. What I mean by that is this, when when Jesus calls us to love others, he's not saying, okay, now what I want you to do is just really muster up this energy to really just focus all this effort on yourself and really trying to make sure you know what love is and to show it. The best way to grow in our love for others is to grow in our understanding of Jesus's love for us. And as he's saying, as you receive and as you are transformed by understanding what Jesus has done for us, by realizing the significance of the cross, this sacrifice, this giving up of himself for us, as we start to grasp that more and more, that is the best way that love then begins to be on display in our lives. See, the love of Jesus is not something that we just grow inside us or muster up with our own strength, but it's something that flows through us because we've received it from him. And so the question is, have you received this love? Have you received this love of Jesus? Not like, do you in your head know that Jesus died for you? But have you actually received this? Have you made this love of Jesus your own? Have you placed your faith in him? Have you asked for forgiveness of your sin? And if you have, are you continually walking in and receiving that love of Jesus in your life every single day? See, just two chapters before, Paul prayed in in Ephesians 3.19 that they would know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. I'm always blown away by that passage. Love it. Know something that is impossible to ever get to the bottom of. Meaning we always in our lives will have room to grow in our understanding of Jesus's love. None of us ever become experts at it. We all have room to grow. And so the best way to grow in love is to grow in our understanding of what Jesus has done for us. And as we fall more in love with him and appreciate his love, that love is starting to be seen through our lives. And it's true that we will then begin to walk in love as Jesus loved us. Verse three, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. If you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. 
and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful to even speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed to the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The second way we are to imitate God is that we are to live in the light. To live in the light. There's this contrast at play, and you notice it sharply there in the verses three through the first half of eight, right? It's just darkness, darkness. These are the deeds of darkness. And then there's this shift, right? But now you are light in the Lord in verse eight. And that's command to walk, to live as children of light. This darkness, he, he gives off these vivid characteristics of what it looks like when someone lives their lives in darkness, One of the characteristics is this sexual immorality that pervades the life of someone living in darkness. Impurity here is not just of a physical impurity or a sexual impurity, but it involves our speech as well. Notice that the crude joking and all of that that goes in involves our speech and ultimately it's idolatry. It's covetousness. Notice that idolatry and greed are so often connected in scripture. See, we think that sometimes idols were just these things that people built thousands of years ago and and bowed down to, but idols are anything that takes the place of God in our lives. And when greed becomes a part of our life, we build idols of success, of money, of other things, and we bow down to those idols with our lives, ultimately showing that we are in darkness. All of these things that characterize the life of someone in darkness, notice how self-gratifying they are in contrast with the sacrificial love that Jesus calls us to. Notice the focus on all of these things is self-gratification focused on us rather than the sacrificial nature of love. And so these deeds are those who are surrounded by, they were true of us. And he said, do not become partners with them. Now, Some would take this verse and say, oh, well, this is great. So I should never associate with anyone who has any of these deeds true in their life. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that we should just make this own like little, little place to live and not allow anyone into our world that has these things true. But this idea of partners, meaning that you walk and you live right alongside with them. This impurity and all these other things that are true of their life, you go right with them and you are partners with them in their evil. He says, no, as a follower of Jesus, we can't do that. And notice his his defining characteristic, what he says was true of every single one of us before Jesus. Look at that in verse eight. For at one time, you were darkness. Of that, not at one time you were affected by darkness, Not at one time you lived in the world of darkness, but when he looks at our spiritual condition, he says, at one time, all of us were utterly dark. Inside our souls, there was nothing. There was no light. It was just utterly sinful before the light of Jesus has come in. See, we were affected by sin. We were dark. He says earlier in Ephesians 2 that we were dead in our sin. We need to get this realistic picture of what life apart from Jesus looks like when we live in our own sin. But now the light has come, right? That we have been made light in Jesus and to walk as children of light. So how do we walk 
as children of light. What does this look like, all right? The darkness are all these, these horrible things that shouldn't be true. What does it look like to walk as children of the light? He says there in verse 10, to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, to try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. It's that idea of to pay special attention and notice, to take hold, to really figure out what in every situation actually brings brings pleasure, is pleasing to God. So not just assume that I know that how I live my life, that doing this brings honor and pleasure to God, but actually to discern and pay careful attention to it. When I think of this idea of, of like studying and, and discerning what is pleasing to the Lord, to me, I was reminded of, if you can remember back in the time, when, if you're married, when you first met and started dating your spouse, right? You're like, man, I, I'm crazy about this person, but I don't really know them that well. Some of you knew each other since you were in elementary school. All right, you're weird. Give this to the rest of us who didn't meet till we're in our 20s. All right, I just love you, all right? Even if you know each other since you were kids. But for most of us, right, you like, I, I really enjoy this person. I really care about them, but you don't really know necessarily what they enjoy and don't enjoy. So what do you do as a thoughtful person? You have to discern what they enjoy, right? You don't just assume that the things you enjoy, they enjoy. And when you do, because we all do it, you find out really quick that that was a mistake, right? For instance, in my life, in my family, on birthdays, what did we do for birthdays? It kind of just meant we had a nice meal together. That was it. And I just was like, oh, okay, this is just what people do for their birthdays. That's not what everyone does for their birthdays. And my wife and I had just been dating for a few months when it was her birthday. And she was expecting kind of how her family had celebrated. And gifts are very important to her. And I, for her first birthday that we were dating, I got her nothing. <laughs> I did not discern what was, if I, she gave out like every single hint imaginable, right? And I'm like the clueless 20-year-old guy, like just right over my head, right? I have no idea that she's laying it down. Now it goes to show how gracious and patient she is that she's still with me, right? She put up with it. But I learned like, hey, I need to, to actually figure out what is pleasing her and not just assume that whatever I think is what's best. And it's this idea that to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, to, to, to examine with careful thought and intentionality our lives. And to say, hey, is, is this area, is living like this, is doing this, is this actually bringing honor to God? Or is that just how I've always done it? Sometimes we fall into these routines and we don't actually step back and evaluate major things in our lives and say, is this pleasing to the Lord or is this just the way that I do it. And so we need to, to call in to be discerning of what is pleasing to the Lord. But then not only that, as we in verse 11, take no parts of these unfruitful works of darkness, the second thing of children of light, how we walk in it is it says there in verse 12 to, ex, excuse me, end of verse 11, to expose them, to expose the works of darkness. He references here in verse 14, Likely a reference back to Isaiah chapter 60, verses one and two, about the, the light of the Messiah shining on and exposing the darkness. So what does it mean as children of light to expose the darkness? Does this mean that like we start a Twitter that just like calls out every single person in our life for every sin, or we have like a blog, or, or we just have a list in our heads where whenever someone wrongs us, we just look at them and go, uh-huh, 
Uh-huh. Like, okay, I'm going to expose you someday. Just get ready for it. Does it mean we're just calling out people randomly and all the time? No, that's not at all what it means. Suddenly, sorry, go home, delete your Twitter, your Twitter, your Twitter account, <laughs> if that's what you think it means. What it means is this, is that when we live as children of light, when we understand the change that Jesus has made in our lives, the goodness of our life in Jesus will point to the emptiness of a life apart from him. The goodness of the light of Christ shining through us day in and day out will light into those dark places and show the emptiness of what it looks like to try and live a fulfilled life apart from Jesus. It's not that we're just calling out people all the time, but it's a call to live our lives in such a way that in the dark places and amongst people who are walking in darkness, the light of Christ is shown through our lives and onto their lives that they see Jesus through us. Now that's not a new concept. That's not something radical just in this passage. That's pretty common throughout. But I think for me, at least as I think about this in my own life, and I can imagine for so many of us, here's the struggle with this. Here's the struggle of trusting in God that living through the light exposes the deeds of the darkness is that it doesn't change people overnight. Right, Living as children of light does not change. People don't suddenly, like you meet Jesus and walk into the room the next day. They're like, wow, my life is emptiness. I'm in darkness. I need Jesus. Tell me what you have. Right, That doesn't happen that way. And the challenge is this, is that I'm sure for every single one of us here today, that there's people who we love, who we dearly love, who are walking in darkness. There's people who we love who are walking away from Jesus and are walking in darkness. For some of us, maybe it's a parent who's just not following Jesus and we can see the emptiness in their lives. For others of us, it's a brother or a sister, a sibling who we can just see the path they're on and we know where it's headed and we try all we can to help. For some of you, maybe it's a child's who has grown up and and raised the right way, but they've wandered and they're living their life in darkness. I just want to remind us this morning to not underestimate the significance of walking in the light for years at a time. Don't underestimate the impact that walking in the light of Jesus has in those dark places for years at a time. See, in our timetable, the light turns on And immediately, everything in the darkness is exposed. But so often, as I've seen it, that it often takes decades, decades of walking in the light that suddenly the darkness in people's hearts and minds begins to be exposed and they begin to be open into receiving the light of Jesus. And so as we think of what this looks like, I just want to encourage you to not give up, to not stop living as children of light just because we don't see it changing people Yet, because Jesus calls us to live in the light and that it will expose, it has its work. And so don't underestimate the significance of day in and day out of walking faithfully in Jesus and allowing the light of Christ to flow through our lives to the people who we dearly love. Verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, 
addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The third way we imitate God is that we live in wisdom. We live in wisdom. It says to, to walk as not unwise, but as wise. And to help us understand what wisdom looks like, he, he gives us three contrasts here, three contrasts quickly lined up as to what it looks like to live in foolishness versus to live in the wisdom of Jesus. First is how we spend our time. Verse 16, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. This is a constant challenge, isn't it? To be wise in the stewardship of our time. It's the same resource that all of us are given. We all have the exact same amount of hours this next week, but some of us will spend it much wiser than others. And I think in our world with so many distractions today that it's, this is perhaps a harder challenge than ever is to be wise stewards of our time. It's really easy to turn on the TV or to open our phone and for hours to have flown by. I'm guilty too. But are we being wise stewards, wise use of the time because of the days are evil? Because look at the world around us. I remember, I forget who it was who said, you know, if, if Satan can't make us bad, he'll make us busy, right? And so many times our lives are just filled with stuff that we don't make good use of the time. We're not wise use we do not spend our time wisely. Verse 17, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Right? Are we foolish in how we live? Or are we seeking the will of the Lord in our lives? Now, when it talks about the will of God, sometimes we think that, that when we think of the will of God, it's like this very specific plan that God has for my life, right? When you think of people who really want to know what is the will of God for my life, it's like, where should I go to college? What's the will of God? Where should I spend my career? When you find someone who's dating, is it God's will for me to marry those person? And God cares about those things, yes, but sometimes we think of the will of God as like this magic eight ball, right? Like we shake it and God's going to give us an answer. Is this your will or not? But the will of God, what it means here to understand what the will of the Lord is, isn't so much about a career or a job or where to go to college, but it's much more about who you are as a person. See, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Right? This is the will of God. God cares more about what you do. Excuse me, <laughs> that came out wrong. God cares more about who you are than what you do. God cares more about your character than your career. And so as we, as we ask God, what is your will? It's not so much about this specific future destination, but how, what is your will, God, that today I would be formed more to look more like Jesus? This third contrast, verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. He suddenly brings up drunkenness here. And we don't know if this is a specific issue that he's referencing. We do know if you go back and read through Proverbs that the drunkard and the fool are often equated. It's one and the same, right? A drunkard is a fool. And so he's saying rather than being drunk, rather than being filled with alcohol, instead be filled, he sets us up this contrast, be filled with the spirit. So what does it mean to be filled 
with the Spirit. What's helpful is, as we've taught through Ephesians, you've hopefully caught on that this language of fulfillment, of being filled, has come up multiple times. In chapter 1, verse 23, the church is Christ's body. It said it shares in the fullness of Christ, meaning there's something about Jesus that is only experienced as we are part of the church. In chapter 3, it says that we would be filled with the fullness of Christ, talking about growing in every way. In chapter 4, 13, the goal of our life is mature manhood, which then is equated to the fullness of Christ. So when he's saying to be filled with the Spirit, what he's saying is that we should ask and seek God to be transforming our hearts and lives by the Spirit so that we would become more like Jesus. To be filled with the Spirit is to ask the Spirit to continually transform our hearts and our lives so we look more like God. To be filled with the Holy Spirit does not mean you get more of the Holy Spirit. It's not like you have like 20% and he's saying get up to 30 and get up to 40. No, to be filled with the Holy Spirit doesn't mean you get more of him, but he gets more of you. It's not that you are lacking. No, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. You are sealed with him if you are a follower of Jesus. But to be filled means that you give more and more of your life over to him as he transforms you more and more to look like Jesus. And this is evidenced in our lives. We're filled with the Spirit. He lists out these evidences of what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. Our lives, first off, are lives of worship, right? We address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with our hearts to the Lord. Worship is an overflow of when our lives are being filled by the Spirit. Next, we are thankful. We're giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then third, this characteristic of being filled with the Spirit is a spirit of submission. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit literally means to arrange ourselves under. And what he's saying here is when we revere, other translations say when we fear Christ, have this fear of the Lord that's spoken about throughout Scripture. When we understand who God is, we get a more accurate picture of ourselves. And we can live in submission to someone else, to one another, because of what the gospel has done in our lives, because we are empowered by Jesus. And so there's this call that he has to them to live wisely, not as unwise, but to, to live in wisdom. And as I look at what it looks like to follow Jesus in our world, in this area, in this year, in this time that God has placed us I think it's true and all of us would agree that we desperately need God's wisdom and how to live in this time and in this place representing him well. And perhaps the wisest thing we can do is to recognize our need for wisdom from Jesus for today. James 1.5 encourages us and said, if any of you lacks wisdom, and here's the hint, that's all of us. We all lack wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. So where do you need wisdom and how to follow God in your life? Where do you need wisdom and what it looks like to exalt Jesus in the circumstances in which he has placed you? Because we are to imitate God, to walk in these ways that love, the love of Jesus would flow through our lives. The light of Christ would be seen through us that those who are apart from him would see the light of Jesus and the difference that it makes. And we are to walk as people who are wise in this fallen world that God has placed us in. God, we thank you. We thank you that you are the God worth following. 
And as we think of what it means to imitate you, we think of how great and how awesome your love for us. Again, and I'm reminded of how often in my life, how much I fall short. God, we ask that you would give us wisdom. God, we desperately need it. There are things facing us, God, that we do not know how to handle, what to do. And so we ask that we would receive your wisdom, that you would be honored and glorified in our lives. God, that Jesus would be exalted through our lives to this world. We pray this in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.